It was a blood-chilling scene that met them there on the lakeshore. After a tiring day, and then a harrowing night's journey, the men had hoped for a little rest, but it was not to be. As they disembarked from the small fishing boat, down the embankment, down towards the lake, came this horrific creature. Wild as a beast, the man came after them, clawing the air with blood dripping from the self-inflicted wounds in his body. As he ran toward them, the men could hear the clanking of the broken chains from his recent escapes from prison, interspersed by the shrieking of a legion of demons that had controlled the wretched soul. As he came near, they screamed out to Jesus, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you torment me not. What an experience, what a scene, what a miserable, terrible existence for a man created in God's image. And as I read this story in the Gospels, I wonder, how could a person created in God's image come to the point of being so possessed by Satan as to be in this despicable condition? How could a person be so taken control of by Satan? Does Satan have permission to go and grab someone against their will and control them in this way? Now, I don't want to digress too far into this into this point, but those of you who have studied this story in the various Gospels will note the small discrepancy between the account of Matthew versus the account of Mark. Matthew records there being two demon-possessed men, and Mark says that there were only one. And, and there's atheist friends of mine who will point out the fact and say, well, the, how can you trust the Bible if one says one story and one says another? Well, I don't have a problem with it, honestly, because if you look at the history, Matthew was a tax collector. I imagine he still was pretty good with numbers and took the time to count. Mark, on the other hand, everything he says happened immediately. If you ever read through the book of Mark, it's suddenly, immediately, and Mark suddenly saw a man coming out and probably turned tail and ran and didn't see the rest of the story. <laughs> but suffice it to say, whether there was one demoniac or, or whether there was two, the story is still the same. The man or the men came under so much under the power of Satan, he took such control of their minds and their bodies that he was working through these men to oppose the work of Jesus. But Jesus had other plans. Jesus came to these men, chained by Satan, for one purpose, and that purpose was to set them free. In fact, that's basically the only thing Jesus did when he came to this region across the Sea of Galilee, because as a result of this chain of events, at the end of this story, he and his disciples got back in the boat and had to cross back over the lake. But to me, this story encapsulates the, the whole meaning behind Jesus' mission here on earth. A rescue mission to set us free. And so that brings me to the title of my message today. And I ask you, and I ask myself, are you really free? Are you really free?
Well, of course, we don't have slavery here in America, at least not officially. If you're over 18 and if you're not incarcerated or something like that, you're likely considered an adult and you're free to do just about anything that you want to do, right? I mean, I can get in my car and I can drive to any state in the Union. And as long as I don't drive over the speed limit, no one's going to stop me. No one's going to ask me where I'm going or why I'm going there or tell me that I can't go. Here in America, we revel in the freedom that we have. We take it for granted most of the time. And quite honestly, we, and I speak of myself too, we rather enjoy pushing the very limits of our freedom in every way imaginable. Who doesn't want to drive just a little bit over the speed limit just because you can get away with it, right? <laughs> but we live, it would seem, with a motto that nothing is off limits. And I'm speaking of our society as a whole. None is a, not the way we as Christians should live, but I'm speaking of us as a society. Nothing is off limits. No music is too bad to listen to. No words are too vulgar to say, no matter who you are. No film is too indecent to watch or to broadcast on television. No vice is too low that it can't be praised as progressive, alternative lifestyle. No crime is too vile that it cannot be considered a subject of an artistic expression or of a new form of entertainment. Yes, Ours is a country of freedom, and I'm grateful for the freedoms that we enjoy. But I ask myself, and I ask you, are we really free? Does this motto of having nothing off limits make us free? If we take pleasure in free expression, but that free expression involves subjugating a class of citizens to unspeakable abuse. Is that freedom? If I praise sensuality and lust, at what point does my freedom forge the chains of my own bondage? Yes, my friends, I dare say that much of what we call freedom today is nothing more than a steep and slippery slope leading down into the devil's trap. How did these demoniacs get to be so thoroughly and utterly possessed by the devil? Well, the, de the Bible really doesn't tell us much about these men. They appear there on the lake shore, and that's really the first that we hear of them in the scriptures. But that's not the only story we have in the scriptures. It's not the only story of demon-possessed men. In fact, there are many stories in the scriptures, and from these stories we can gain a hint as to how these men came into this condition and learn some lessons I believe that we can apply in our own lives. Fearful lessons, fearful warnings that we'd better take heed to if we want to avoid falling into a similar trap. Take, for example, the life of the very first king of Israel. Now, who can tell me who the name of the first king of Israel. Saul. Saul was a young man. He was honest. He was upright. And he was about as humble as they come. 
In fact, he was known to be part of a group of godly prophets during his younger years. But after he became king, he slowly, almost imperceptibly at first, but slowly began to change. It's not as though the devil just attacked him, grabbed him by the shoulders, forced him into a path that he didn't want to go on. No, no, the, God doesn't let the devil have that much power. But slowly, almost imperceptibly, Saul made some little choices. After he became king, the power and the pomp and the glory of being the king, the first king of Israel, as they say, went to his head. He started to be puffed up with pride. He started to to compromise little by little with evil. Maybe a little lie here. Stretching the truth a little bit there. Taking just a little bit too much authority. A little too much glory to himself. Soon led him to do things that only a priest should do. Before long, Saul ended up transgressing the direct command of God. When he led Israel out to battle, and God had said, do this and do this, and kill the, the enemies, and destroy the livestock. No, instead he took many captive, brought the livestock back, and he made all the excuses. Oh, oh, these are, these are for the people. The people need to offer sacrifices to God. Oh, he had 101 wonderful good reasons why they did this. But nonetheless, they disobeyed the voice of God. And Samuel came to Saul with the message we find in 1 Samuel 15, verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. And slowly and imperceptibly, Saul started down the wrong road. He started saying no to God. And by saying no to God, he started saying yes to Satan. And Satan started to gain a foothold and gain some traction in his life. And it was only a short time after this incident that we find, in fact, actually, if you turn there in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, it's very fascinating, the verse there, and and Bible scholars have puzzled over this one. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. God's spirit, during his early days, God's spirit was with Saul. As I said, he was even known to be to prophesy under the spirit, under the influence of God. But because of his disobedience, God's spirit left Saul. And another spirit came. Oftentimes the Old Testament will say that God does something when he allows something to happen. This was not God's spirit that came back into Saul. It was an an evil or distressing spirit that came to Saul, which God allowed because of Saul's choices. And ever after that time, Saul was more and more and more plagued by this distressing spirit. You could say that he was, he began to be possessed by the devil. Well, he was, he was plagued by this distressing spirit. And the only thing in those early days of, of this new transition in Saul's life, the only thing that would, 
that would give him peace, that would give him rest, was a little bit of music. And so he searched through his kingdom and he called a young man by the name of David to come into his palace and to play his harp. And that when David would play his harp, and, and just to digress a minute, do you know the power that music has over a person? The power for good, for evil, yes, we can see in the world, and the power for good. The, the hymns that we sing, the music up that uplifts Jesus, can drive away the spirit of Satan. And so, so David was there playing his harp for Saul, and, and it would drive away this evil spirit, but even still, three times Saul took a spear and tried to kill David while he was playing his harp. And, and then later on in the story, Saul takes out the entire army of Israel. He was a madman by this point. Saul brings out the entire army of Israel to hunt down David over petty jealousy. And by the end of his life, Saul, the Spirit of God has entirely departed from Saul. And Saul, in desperation, goes to consult a medium, a witch, at Endor, who gave him a a message, not of hope, but of doom. Saul had thought that he was exercising his freedom. When he started to disregard God's law, he said, aren't I not the king of Israel? Who is Samuel to tell me what I'm supposed to do and not do? Don't I have the freedom to do this? And yes, he did. In a human sense. Because he was the king, he could do whatever he wanted to do. And that he did. At the direct disobedience to God's command. But Saul discovered too late that in exercising his freedom, he was really forging the chains of his own bondage. In exercising his freedom to transgress God's law, he found himself enslaved. And so I ask you today, my friends, are you really free? How can you be free? Turn with me to John chapter 8. New Testament now. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John chapter 8 and verse 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants, and that we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Think about those words for a minute. Whoever commits sin, and what is sin? The Bible says sin is the transgression of the law. Whoever does not obey God's law is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. 
According to the Bible, my friends, what is the only way to have true freedom? What is the only way? Jesus. To abide in Jesus. To keep his commandments. To keep his laws. And what law was Jesus talking about when he says, he who abides, if, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. What word, what law was Jesus talking about? Well, we find here in, in James, if you turn over to James chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. James chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For he said, do not commit adultery. Sorry, he who said do not commit adultery also said, do not murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but if you murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. What law is this that says do not commit adultery and do not commit murder? The Ten Commandments, is it not? What other law in the Bible says do not commit adultery and do not commit murder? Right there in that phrase. It's the Ten Commandments. And James continues, So speak and so do as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. My friends, the Ten Commandments that we find here in the Bible is not a Ten Commandments of bondage. It is not a law of bondage, but it is, according to the testimony of the New Testament, the law of liberty. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. There are at least two places where you can find the Ten Commandments in the scripture, Exodus and Deuteronomy. But in Exodus chapter 20, I want you to notice something that we often overlook when we study the Ten Commandments. Often we start reading the Ten Commandments in verse 3 of Exodus 20. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, etc., etc. But God's words do not start in verse 3. The words that God speaks start in verse 2. God says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Look at those next words. Out of the house of bondage. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. Who brought you out of bondage. And by implication, you can say, the, say it of the other direction. I am the one who gave you liberty. Now, in this context, in the context of your immediate deliverance, from bondage. Here are my commandments. You shall have no other gods before you. I delivered you. Why would you worship anyone else? And if you notice the first five commandments, every one of those first five commandments, God gives a reason. God gives a, a reason why, why, why. And every one of those reasons has to do with liberty. If you turn over to Psalms, Psalms chapter 119 and verse 45, another one of my favorite verses. The entire chapter of Psalm 119 is speaking of the Ten Commandments and of God's law. And David says here in Psalm 119 verse 45, I will walk at liberty for I seek your precepts. Friends, all too often I feel, and I fear, that even us, 
many times as Seventh-day Adventists, do not have a right conception of this concept of the law of liberty. Oh yes, we teach the law. Oh yes, we worship on the right day. But how do we keep it? How importantly do we view it? Do we see this as the key to our freedom? Recently, I have been listening to a couple of sermon series by a pastor, Ron Dupre, on morality and Christian ethics. And I highly recommend, if you have an opportunity to listen to any of his material, um, very, very excellent material. But he studies through the lives of great men of Scripture like Daniel and Joseph and points out their faithfulness to God to the very point of death and their faithfulness, faithfulness in the very smallest details of their lives. And I want to be honest with you, friends. I've been convicted more than ever. There is never, ever, ever an excuse for sin. There is never an excuse to break one of God's commandments. There's never such a thing as a moral dilemma where you're faced with an option of only two choices and either one you have to break God's law. There's no such thing. We, we, we've come up with this concept and, it, and it's really antithetical to Christianity that you have to choose the lesser of two evils. Well, now, I suppose that in a situation that doesn't have anything to do with, with the Bible or biblical principles, there may be a, ch a choice, and we use it as kind of as an expression, I have to choose the lesser of two evils. I have to choose to uh, stay in a in a room that's got mice in it, or i got to choose to stay in a, in a room that the carpet smells. Well, I only have two choices. But which am I going to choose? Well, that's not what we're talking about, but we're, we're talking about there's a choice, and if I feel like either way I choose, I'm going to have to break God's law. There's always a third option, or a fourth, or a fifth, or a sixth option that we haven't thought about yet. Because the Bible says there's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted more than you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And, and over and over, and I can't give you, uh, 16 hours worth of, worth of presentations in five minutes. But, uh, I've been convicted more than ever to be careful in every aspect of my life. As I look at this, at the high standard of God's laws presented here in the Bible, you know, it's so easy to stretch the truth a little bit. When I'm, when I'm speaking, when I'm talking, it, it's so easy and I find myself doing it. And I'm not proud of it. I'm just, I'm just confessing now. I find myself doing it over and over again. And, and just the words will slip out of my mouth and then I'll think, that wasn't actually true. That was what I wanted them to hear, but that wasn't actually true. But it's just a little lie. I mean, the Bible doesn't have any difference between little lies and big lies. <laughs> They're all lies. And according to Revelation, liars go to the same place as murderers, and I don't want to go there. <laughs> and I realized even as a pastor, there's parts of my life where I've started to slip down this slippery slope. And I kid myself into thinking that I've got freedom. I can do this, right? 
I mean, we live in America, the U.S. of A. Who's going to tell me I can't do this? But what does God's word say? What does God's word say? Am I really free? Am I really getting more freedom by transgressing God's law? How much did Eve gain when she ate the fruit? By exercising her freedom, how much did she gain? I should ask, how much did she lose? How much did we lose? Friends, there's one thing that gives me courage and hope. And it's the reason that I can stand here today. And it's found in that story of the demoniacs in Mark chapter 5. Because you see, friends, as far as these men had sunk, as far as they had sold themselves to Satan, to the point that they were running around like wild beasts, cutting themselves, totally possessed, chains clanking from their arms and their legs. As far as they had gone, Jesus came that far to save them. And when he spoke the word to the devils, to the legion of demons who had possessed these men, the devils fled. Drove the herd of pigs off the embankment. That's another story. But I love how the story ends. When the people of the town came out to see what was the commotion, what did they find? Two demoniacs there with Jesus? No. Two men clothed and in their right mind and sitting there at the feet of Jesus. Not only that, but when Jesus left, after being there but just a, a few moments, it would seem, he sent them out as missionaries, as living witnesses to tell the great miracle that Jesus had worked in their lives. My friends, that is what gives me hope. Because no matter what I've done, no matter what you've done, no matter if you've let the devil come in and start to take possession of your life, he can take you back. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Friend, I ask you one more time. Are you free? Are you really free? Have you found the freedom that comes only from Christ? A freedom in complete obedience to God's commandments? If not, won't you come to Jesus and let him set you free? You can't change yourself. You can't try, do it by trying harder, but you can choose to come and he can set you free. And if you found that freedom, my friend, do not waver. Do not look with longing eyes on the things the world has to offer, but cling to God's word daily growing in grace. Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. Loving Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the freedom that we can find in Christ and only in Christ. Help us, Lord. You've presented the choices before us. The freedom of Christ in perfect obedience to his law or a yoke of bondage to Satan. And Lord, the choice is so simple. 
And yet many times it is so difficult. Give us the courage to stand. To stand fast in that law of liberty. To take up the freedom that only Christ can give. I pray a special blessing on each one as we go our separate ways until we meet again. May we continue daily growing in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.